Hey guys, before we get into the episode, you all know I'm a huge fan of fashion and I have been ever since I was a little girl. And my first job, by the way, was actually at Macy's. And my love for fashion began when I started there because I worked in the fragrance department, but of course my eye was always on the clothes and the makeup and everything related to style. But here's the thing, my relationship with Macy's didn't end once my days of asking people walking by if they wanted a sample of the latest scents came to an end. Nearly 20 years later, I still find myself choosing Macy's time and time again for literally everything. It's become a really beautiful full circle moment that they've been such amazing supporters of our show for so long. And when it comes to shopping, they have everything you need, whether I need a last minute outfit or Kevin needs a last minute outfit for our friend's wedding. We always head to Macy's. They've got us covered. So if you're in need of some retail therapy, perhaps, or looking to spruce up your home or your lifestyle, check out Macy's friends. I've curated a list of some of my favorite items that have helped me upgrade so many parts of my life, really my fashion the most, but of course home and baby and so much more. So check the link in the description and happy shopping Hill Squad. I remember my mom always struggling with her hair. It's Frizi Maria, my mom would say in her Greek accent. Tiehis, what do you have? I tried so hard to find her products. I wish I could share these products I'm using now with her because I know she would be so happy to finally have good hair days. I've always believed that hair is a woman's best accessory. And with Way's new anti-frizz cream, you can ensure that your hair always looks its best without the frizz stealing the spotlight. It's a lightweight cream that not only provides immediate frizz control, but also helps prevent heat damage. And get this, it lasts up to 72 hours. That's three whole days of frizz-free, gorgeous hair. Way seriously has some of my favorite products for taming the frizz. Pro tip, one of my biggest discoveries is using the Way hair oil on the ends of my hair before I dry it. Let me tell you, it's a game changer. Once it's dry, my hair looks so smooth and polished. I don't even need to do anything else. It is incredible. I love it. Frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter the promo code Heel Squad for 15% off any product. That's the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code Heel Squad. Trust me, you won't regret it. I'm on a journey to get better in all areas of life, from wellness and mental health to career and relationships and so much more. I know getting better isn't easy, but it's a whole lot easier when you can do it together. Welcome to Better Together with me, Maria Menunos. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to Better Together. When you know better, you get better. That's what we try to do here every single day. It is Wednesday, August 4th, 2021. Yes, I have to look at the actual day because I never know what date it is anymore. Our quote of the day, even a fool knows you can't touch the stars, but it won't keep the wise from trying. That is from Harry Anderson. And this is our guest's favorite quote is uh, is what I'm hearing. We'll get to that in a second. Welcome to our Heel Squad. Of course, I'm coming to you from our East Coast uh, home, not in the studio because I don't really know how to operate our studio on my own. It's very <laughs> high tech and it needs a Kelsey. And uh, Kelsey happens to be on the West Coast. She will soon be joining us here on the East Coast for our Better Together uh, Summit that I'm very excited about. But um, yeah, I don't know how to operate it. So I'm coming to you from my dining room. I apologize if it's echoey. I was supposed to be outside in nature and my dad is tearing off uh, a very messed up roof um, currently in the backyard. So it started getting very loud and I had to shift locations quickly, but um, that's what happens here. You know, all of a sudden walls come down, roofs get taken down, gardens are erected, all kinds of crazy stuff. 
So we just roll through it. But today, guys, I am so, so excited. And I know uh, I've been talking about bringing on the people that helped me through this really tough time with my mom so I can share them with you. And our guest today, Brian Mahan, was uh, one of those incredible um, people that helped me through my journey. And Gabby Bernstein, who initiated my you're on a mandatory 30 day break, um, connected me with Brian. She's like, you need to work with Brian. He's going to be so helpful. And he was, so I'll tell you a little bit about Brian. Um, he started his own healing journey after suffering from developmental trauma, social anxiety, self-loathing, depression, shame, and eventually seven to 10 full blown panic attacks daily. So he, who now helps everyone has gone through this. Uh, After working with a somatic experiencing practitioner, his panic attack stopped and he entered the three-year training program to become a somatic experiencing practitioner himself. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to educate you on what a somatic experiencing practitioner does. Today, Brian helps people from all walks of life, including myself with his practice, which specializes in developmental traumas and shock traumas. I'm so excited to dive into everything today with Brian. So Better Together and the Hill Squad are very excited to welcome you, Brian. Thank you for joining us. I don't know where you are because you float around yourself, but are you in LA? I am. I'm back in LA for another month. Okay. And then uh, I will be spending six months in Merida, Yucatan, Mexico. Nice. Nice. Well, thankfully, everything via Zoom is very helpful nowadays. So um, let's first dive into what somatic therapy is. Well, um, that's a great question, a good beginning, because, you know, somatic therapies um, work with predominantly the physiology of trauma. And so we have to understand the malady in order to work with or to find the right modality. And so when we can understand that trauma is predominantly and indeed intrinsically a physiological condition more so than a psychological disorder, then we have a greater potential to actually work with it and heal it. Now, how, do, because- how do people figure that out though? Because to me, trauma from what most people would think is something that happened to us that we remember that is uh, a feeling or an experience that that traumatized us, right? A, a shocking car accident like you've gone through or uh, a tragic death um, in the family. But you're saying it's it's physiological, like it's lodged in our bodies somewhere. And I right. I want you to explain that a little further. Well, even feelings are physiological, right? An emotion really, and you know, and I'm oversimplify things quite a bit, but an emotion is a collection of sensations with a conflux of neurochemicals and behaviors. So that's all physiological. And one of the reasons why we look at trauma as being physiological is that we can become traumatized before we can think and reason. So we can become traumatized, pre-verbal, pre-cognitive, and preconceptual. So if that system isn't even online, then how could the disorganization, dysregulation, or wounding experience 
be psychological. It's not to say that in time, we don't develop the psychological parts or components, because in time, you know, our ability to think and reason and compare and contrast and judge comes online. Mm -hmm. And then we're thinking about what we're feeling. And so, you know, the important thing to recognize is that we feel everything we think, and we think about everything we feel. And if we can become traumatized, preverbal, precognitive, and preconceptual, um, then we have to look at memory in two different ways. There's embodied memory, and then there's the explicit, which we call implicit memory, and then there's explicit memory, which is how we have a tendency to think of memory, which is you know the little vignettes and the montages and the flashbacks and the image and the sounds and the smells and all of those components come together. But we also have implicit memory. And so from a survival strategy, we have to be able to have memory before our explicit memory even comes online around 18 to 24 months. And then it takes a while for that system to develop. So if you're pre-verbal, precognitive, and you're crawling across the kitchen floor and you use the hot stove to pull yourself up, your body has to remember that big hot avocado box as it was in my kitchen growing up, you know, is hot and dangerous so that we know to avoid it. And so we have to recognize two different types of memory, embodied memory, unconscious, subconscious, but nonetheless, oftentimes more accurate and long lasting than explicit memory, because we also know that explicit memory is malleable. In fact, recent studies have shown that when you go into the filing cabinet of a memory and you go to pull a memory out, it changes. Then you have the memory and that can change based on who you are, where you are, what, how you think and feel and your beliefs around the world, and then putting it back in. And so yeah. they're even saying that the memories that we have can be as much as 50% different than what they actually are. This is why I film everything because I know our minds. I always just say it plays tricks on us, but I'm such a person who like. When you're on the go 24 seven, like me guys, finding ways to make life easier is so important for my health and sanity. <laughs> and that's exactly what my friends at Macy's do for me from working there as a teenager to now going to them for so many of my daily essentials. It's been my go-to for so many years and having everything in one place is such a time saver for me with being a first time mom for a while now, as you know, I've had plenty of those and being able to rely on them for all the things has been amazing. Plus having everything in one place has made being a new mom just a little bit easier for me. So I know we're all focusing on our families, our health, hopefully our jobs and everything in between, but it's time to make your life a little easier. And to help you out, I've curated all of my essentials from Macy's for you and the whole fam. All the details are in the show notes below, or you can just click the link in the description to get your hands on them too. I have some new picks on there. This little bomber jacket, this little black dress. You're gonna love it. Really loves facts and accuracy. And like, and I, I never want to remember something the wrong way and, and feel like, you know, unsure or, or having to like, Oh, I think it was like that. No, no, no. I filmed everything. So I can go back and look at it and say, Oh no, this is exactly how it went. I love that. So if I could return though, because I had to give a little bit of background, but return to the question about somatic therapy, where does this come from? And why does it seem like, you know, this is a new groundbreaking kind of process. It's actually been 
studied, researched, and implemented for 30 or 40 years. But it's just taken a while for Zeitgeist and for the collective, you know, conscious to kind of understand it. Um, there's been a real research, a real um, spotlight put on it recently because research that's been done with vets around PTSD um, has shown that um, oftentimes traditional approaches like psychiatry and psychology haven't really been helping and in some situations have even been harming. Um, so much of this work originally was based on research that was done by Dr. Eugene Genlin at the University of Chicago. And he had done a 20 year long study to figure out why some patients were getting better and others weren't. And so for 20 years, he looked at all the different types of therapy. He also looked at the therapists themselves, their ability to um, create rapport and safety and containment and apply their knowledge into the work. And as important as that therapeutic alliance is, and as important it is to use the right modality for the malady, what he found is the single most determining factor as to whether or not anybody gets better in any practice with any practitioner is based in the client's ability to feel sensations in their bodies, to language those sensations appropriately, and to then attach the right affect or emotion, and then the right meaning or belief. Hey, Hill Squad and Better Together fam. It's been a tough year, but we hear from so many of you just how much our content is helping you heal and get better, and it makes us feel so good. Our team works so hard to deliver this life-changing content, and a lot of you guys ask, how can I have a bigger role in our Heal Squad community, or how can I do my part to help Better Together continue to uplift even more people? First of all, thank you for that sentiment, and we're so grateful for this community. If you could help us by giving us a five-star rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts. That's amazing. Second, you could join the Better Together with Maria Menounos Facebook group and Instagram page. Third, you could share the show with a friend in need. And finally, for as little as $10 a month, please join our Patreon to get monthly live heal events with world-class healers, ad-free episodes of our show, and even weekly bonus episodes exclusive to Patreon. Getting better isn't easy, but it is a whole lot better when we can do it together. We love and appreciate and are so grateful for all of you. Right? It sounds so complicated. (laughs) All of those come together, right? So an emotion, right? Collection of various sensations and or varying levels of sensation and various locations in our body with the conflux of neurochemicals of various types to varying levels creates an experience that the higher brain then interprets and gives language. This is, you know, so if we look at a primary emotion like anger, um, we can understand that there's a spectrum, there are affects of anger. So there may be peeved, perturbed, pissed, frustrated, disappointed, homicidal rage, right? So we have all these different expressions of anger. And so the higher brain can misinterpret what the body is feeling as well. So sometimes I have clients that mistake anxiety for excitement and they move towards danger and vice versa. I have clients that will move away from good things because they're experiencing the excitement as anxiety. Mm -hmm. There can also be a shame component in there too, where I don't deserve to feel good. I don't deserve to get better. So, you know, so this groundbreaking research was really kind of where somatic therapies 
um, were born. And then Dr. Peter Levine has been researching for 40 years, um, developing this technique, somatic experiencing, which is now taught in what I believe is 125 countries and 25 languages. But that may be an old statistic. It may be a bit higher now. Wow. Well, so, I think that we're, we're probably introducing somatic experiencing and somatic therapy to our audience for the first time, because I will just say I had never heard of it. And I am like, I'm like, I am the zeitgeist. Like I, this is what I do for a living. Um, right. And I, I have been in so much in, in deep diving in self-help for so long. And I had never heard of it. I had heard of EMDR, um, but somatic I had not heard of. So it was very, um, it was very um, challenging at first to understand what we were even doing, right? Because you just kept telling me to feel things in my body. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> What's happening? I don't know. I don't even know how to officially go there, right? Like, I don't know what I'm feeling. And like you said, you can't really heal unless you know how to properly connect all those dots. But I'll share with everybody just one little thing that we did that wasn't little actually. But I had this thing where kind of like in my right groin area, um, it was almost like a, like a big bubble, something hard, like concretey, like just this hard thing. And every time something bad would happen with my mom, it would just like ball up right there. And like a doctor's appointment, something got missed or a mistake or anytime I felt that panic, it would just manifest right there. And so I remember, I think it was like our second session. I told you about this. I think and it was the first. Was it the first? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we we worked on it and you know, and you can explain the process of it for everybody, but I'll give you guys a short of it. We worked on it and then it was gone. And then I was just in complete shock that it was gone. And you kept saying, why are you looking for it? <laughs> like, stop trying to look for it. Um, but I kept looking for it. I'm like, I'd like touched on them. I'm like, wait, where are you? You're always there. Ugh! And at some point it came back towards the end of my mom's like journey. And I remember calling you and being like, all right, I got a tough, tall order for you. We got to do this again. And I really didn't think it would happen again. I thought maybe the first time was a fluke, but the second time in that session, boom, it was gone. And I just think it's really powerful to, to see things like that, to see such quick change. And I know on your website, you talk about like, I want you to get in and out of these sessions fast. I want you to be able to come in and just do what you need to get healed and go. Um, and man, I mean, in one session to lose something that had been with me for so long and very painful. I mean, I remember I would like, Kevin would be trying to massage it and I'm trying to massage it and nothing would make it go. Um, so maybe you can explain kind of the process that we went through, um, and what it all means, um, for other people, because other people carry their stress in different places. They might carry it in their back and their shoulders, um, and I do believe, and I'm sure you can answer this. I believe that if it goes untreated, it will manifest into disease, right? So when I help patients with tumors and things like that, and I give them kind of my five-year cheat sheet of everything I learned, 
one of the last questions I ask them as we go through, okay, what's the treatments you're going to do? How can we like optimize these? How do we adjust the diet? The last thing is always, what's the emotional component you haven't dealt with here? And they go, how did you know? And I'm like, because I've just noticed the patterns at this point. And it's usually um, trauma from some part of their life that hasn't been dealt with. We sweep it under the rug. We keep moving forward. And I think that's what manifests disease. So I really don't believe you can be fully healed of disease unless you heal the traumas. And that's where you come in. Okay. So a few things. One, and specifically talking about the details of the process that we went through around your one particular, you know, kind of, we'll call it a holding pattern. Um, there's some detail in there that I just want to check in with you. Yeah. Because we did tra- track it back to an original wounding mm-hmm. experience. And so I don't want to divulge any information that you're not comfortable with sharing. Yeah. You feel like your life is an open book. It is. Um, I don't even remember what it was now, but I'm an open book. You're fine. Go ahead. Let's just say uh, <laughs> uh, standing with your mom on the phone as a little girl. Oh, oh, I think, yeah, yeah, go ahead. It's, it's okay. fine. Okay. So um, we'll, we'll put a pin in there. Um, then uh, you also brought a reference between working somatically with specific pains in your body, but it's much more broad than that. Um, sometimes certainly things present and holding patterns and that kind of thing, which can, you know, create pain in the body or specific, you know, kind of issues that you're trying to figure out how to unlock. But oftentimes, um, you know, I come to come clients come to me for all kinds of reasons, including um, changing patterns and reenactments and habituations in their lives, um, et cetera. So that will bring us all the way back to first, we have to take a look at what is wounding, mm-hmm. right? Um, and this is really kind of the model in which I work because I find it to be the most effective. And so if we look at a wounding experience and our childhoods are riddled with wounding experiences uh, because an intrinsic part of um, our childhood experience is shame. And so shame is what I call the death by a thousand paper cuts because we're born with a longing for belonging we have a drive to remain in favor because if we fall out of favor, we have the potential of the breaking of that interpersonal bridge of the people who are caring for us. And if that happens from a survival strategy, we could be rejected, neglected, abandoned, shunned, or cast out. And all of that could lead to our death. And so this is a survival mechanism. This is not conscious because this is pre-verbal, pre-cognitive, pre-conceptual. This is just our animal instinct for survival. So when we have experiences as a child, whether they are um, boundary breaches of the physical kind, right? Meaning we get injured or we fall or we get slapped or things like that. All right, friends, let's talk about something we all do. Snack. Trust me, I've definitely overindulged in the past, but as you know, I am focused 
on my health these days. And I think I found the healthier snack that you don't have to lose out on the flavor. And it's definitely become my go-to. It first came into the house because of Kevin. He was obsessed with wonderful pistachios. And then I got addicted. And now it's in my travel bag. I don't leave home without it. It's in our glove compartments because they don't melt. Right now, my favorite flavor is the sweet chili flavor. It feels like some of the naughtier kind of snacks I used to use where I used to lick my fingers after. Now I lick them and I feel safer. Um, Plus, Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. That's crazy, guys. So if you're looking for the perfect snack, trust me and head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com to snag a bag of Wonderful Pistachios. You're going to love them. Or there are boundary breaches of the energetic kind where we begin to learn things that other people see in us, right? So that's kind of part of the shaming experience. So anytime there's a wounding experience, it's a physiological disorganization, dysregulation, because our nervous system and our lower brain, which is our early detection warning system and responsible for our survival, that system has to come online, go into hyperarousal and figure out how am I going to deal with this threat? Whether the threat is perceived or real, it's real because we're having a physiological reaction to it. So when that threat response comes online, depending on whatever circumstances, situation, people, et cetera, that are involved in that experience, we build imprints and um, beliefs around that experience. So we can form beliefs around the environment, the behavior that was going on, the relational experience that was happening with us and whoever it is, a sibling, a teacher, a parent, et cetera. Um, So we form beliefs about all of that, but we also can oftentimes take on the beliefs of what we interpret other people think about us, right? So we have a wounding experience. It brings on survival strategies, coping mechanisms, And oftentimes as children, we have to figure out highly creative ways to do that because we don't have life skill and tools and experience and and intellect and that kind of thing. So we we have to rely on on our defenses and coping mechanisms and survival strategies. Um, Afterwards, we have to implement ways of self-soothing and self-regulating oftentimes. And then there are all those beliefs that come together. So this is what I call a cluster or what I look at like a short circuit in the nervous system or for people in California, it's like a multiple car pileup on the freeway, right? So we have this wounding experience that has a lot of components to it. And the beliefs that we form around that wounding experience have the potential to last a lifetime. And a lot of people are trying to change their beliefs through cognitive practice or what I call mental gymnastics. Hmm. What it's I like when is, we go to Tony Robbins and he's trying to help us release our limiting beliefs. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's not that all of these other practices aren't helpful. It's just sometimes they can be a temporary relief. And then we have to implement and implement and implement and implement and implement. Now with neuroplasticity, eventually, if we're consistent in the re-implementation of these other thoughts, then sure, that can have an impact and effect on things and on a longer scale. But we have to recognize that the beliefs are there to protect us. And that's why they don't want to let go. And the beliefs are also there scanning the horizon 24 seven to figure out, is it going to happen again? 
And so we can go into this hypervigilance of, is it there? Is it there? Is it there? Is it there? As you were doing with your groin, right? Is it there? Can I find it? Is it back? Right? And so we're in this hypervigilance to try to protect ourselves from having it, from it happening again. But quantum physics and mechanics teaches us we have a tendency to find what we look for. And so while we're looking for it so that we can avoid it, we're actually being drawn towards it and it's being drawn towards us. Now, there's opportunity there. And this is where a lot of people don't understand that there's value in the reenactment, in the pattern, in the habituation, in the vicious cycle. Because if we look at the cluster, so we have, you know, we have the original wound and now we have, you know, we found it on the horizon, it's brought in again, and we're having a reenactment around that original wound. So what's happened is the thoughts have come in, the feelings that come up around those thoughts come up, then our behaviors and beliefs all come back into that cluster. So now we have the original wound in a current presentation, right, through a reenactment, which may not be completely 100% um, reflection of the original wound, and that's where it can also get confusing. So if we can tease apart uh, the thought, the feeling, the belief, and the behavior, right, then we can start to deconstruct that cluster or that short circuit. So two things have to happen in order for the beliefs to change, because that's ultimately what we're looking for, in my opinion, is we've got to get these beliefs to change. Otherwise, things are, you know, our past is going to continue to create our future. And your belief is like what you're, what you believe happened to you, what you believed could happen if you don't let, yes. if you let your guard down. Yeah. And also the beliefs that you formed about yourself. Based on that. Because of the messaging that you got from other people etc. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, you the belief can be, you know, I'm powerless. I, you know, don't have the ability to have my anger and express it. Right. Because sometimes when we express our anger, we discover that we get hurt and punished or there's pushback or we express our anger and we come to find out that it hurts someone else. And so we form these beliefs about anger that it's not okay to have it and it's not okay to express it. Right. And so two things need to occur with that cluster, with that short circuit, with that multiple core pilot. We have to be able to lean into it and get curious about it, feel it. How and where do you feel what in your body when this thought feeling comes together? Then hopefully with a trained professional, you can track that back to the original wound. And then in that state, we can work on helping the nervous system to unwind, discharge, and reorganize so that it can return to resilience, right? So we need that old wound to discharge, reorganize so that your system can come back to homeostasis. Then we also have opportunity in the present day around the reenactment to have a reparative and corrective experience. And so when there's enough repair, reparative and corrective experiences in the present day, and there's enough reorganization around the original wound, the beliefs lose their veracity and they begin to fall away. And then new beliefs based on who you are now, where you are now, what your, your skill set is, your knowledge, your life experience, then more adult appropriate beliefs can come in because most people are acting like four-year-olds because a lot of their wounding is still running the show. And a lot of those early beliefs that we formed when we were you know, birth to 10, 12, 14 years old can 
you know, become so habituated that they just become, well, that's just who I am. This is my personality. Yep. There isn't, this is unchangeable. This is just how I'm hardwired. Right. And that's not necessarily true. We do have the ability to change and transform. God knows I am a completely different human being than I was before my car wreck. And before my car wreck, I spent 25 years trying every pill, potion, and powder, going to every healer and kahuna and witch doctor I could find. <laughs> I went to every seminar, I read every book. I, you know, I did everything I could for 25 years to try to heal. And um, you know, it wasn't until I started working around my panic with somatic experiencing that things really like it was like that missing piece that unlocked everything. And the transformation was, you know, um, huge and steady. Right. So I went from seven to 10 full blown panic attacks, you know, rolling around on the floor and, you know, howling at the moon after three sessions, my panic attack stopped and I haven't had one in 18 years. Right. Within two weeks of that third session, I went into the training and so I continued to do the work for a few years, right? Then I, you know, had my practice. I was helping, you know, hundreds of people. And, you know, we all got our stuff and I still had my stuff. And then I stumbled into this concept of shame and how to effectively work with it. And then that really transformed everything. To me, shame is the linchpin underneath so much of our wounding that it really has to be addressed because shame is the underpinning of every emotion. Shame is the underpinning of how we see ourselves in the world and how we imagine the world sees us, right? It's used in every culture since the beginning of time to socialize children, to form and hold tribe together, to establish power and maintain hierarchy. So it's ubiquitous in the human experience and we don't want to be without shame. Otherwise, we would all be sociopaths and there'd be no rule of law, right? <laughs> we want healthy shame. It's the toxic shame that's so debilitating and keeps us stuck in so many ways. You know, there's there's something you said earlier that um, was really important and, I, and it's connected to shame. I think that we form a lot of these beliefs you said based on what other people think of us or say we are. And we were talking about this a little bit yesterday on the show. I feel like there's the obvious traumas and the obvious shamings, but there's probably so many like micro shamings and micro traumas. I remember my mom always struggling with her hair. It's Frizi Maria, my mom would say in her Greek accent. Tiehis, what do you have? I tried so hard to find her products. I wish I could share these products I'm using now with her because I know she would be so happy to finally have good hair days. I've always believed that hair is a woman's best accessory. And with Way's new anti-frizz cream, you can ensure that your hair always looks its best without the frizz stealing the spotlight. It's a lightweight cream that not only provides immediate frizz control, but also helps prevent heat damage. And get this, it lasts up to 72 hours. That's three whole days of frizz-free, gorgeous hair. Way seriously has some of my favorite products for taming the frizz. Pro tip, one of my biggest discoveries is using the Way hair oil on the ends of my hair before I dry it. Let me tell you, it's a game changer. Once it's dry, my hair looks so smooth and polished. I don't even need to do anything else. It is incredible. I love it. Frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter the promo code Heal Squad for 15% off any product. That's the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code Heal Squad. Trust me, you won't regret it. It can be the raising of an eyebrow. 
Yeah. You know, a side eyeball glance. Um, somebody's just looking at you and going, right? So, you know, once I became aware of shame and I really started to understand how all pervasive it was, it was shocking to me to recognize how much I was shaming people, how much people were shaming me, how I witnessed other people shaming each other, how I saw it in TV and film and stand-up comedy. <laughs> it was just like, oh my God, it is ubiquitous. It really is all pervasive. So how do you make us today in the fastest possible way get that feeling where we understand it on that level where we're having that kind of aha moment of, oh my God, how much am I shaming? How much am I shaming? How much is being shamed around? How can you kind of get us there quick? Well, you know, the way that I work in general, because shame is trauma, right? And so shame also has a physiology to it. Shame is actually a physiological survival response, right? Um, So it has to be worked with physiologically, but it's also helpful to understand it. And so in all work that I do, I look at my work as educational and experiential. The more you understand, the more, the less resistance we'll have from your higher brain, Mm -hmm. right? Just like you said at the top of the show, I had no idea what was going on. Right. When we first started working together, you were like, what? He's just wanted me to feel what? Yeah. Right? Well, it also it felt like kind of cerebral and it was like it was a little it was different than anything I'd ever heard or done. So I was kind of like, we, and, you know, like I'm like the A student that wants to, like, get it right, right away. And I'm like, oh, it was it was just a lot. Yeah, being um, a student wants to get it right away is a little bit of shame there. Yeah, yeah. The shame drives perfectionism. Well, because my shame is I always feel like I'm stupid. So I always want to be the smart one that figures it out. Right. um, Because that's just, yeah, that's part of my shame. So we need to understand it, you know, because the higher brain um, has taken over so much of our survival strategy. Right. We've come to believe we've been socialized that all we need to survive is to study hard, get a good education, get a good job you know, and mind your P's and Q's, you know? And so we've given so much precedence to the higher brain as a survival strategy, but it's really not the higher brain's job. And the problem with that is the higher brain, the neocortex in and of itself is hardwired to be a problem solver because it has the tools available for solving problems, right? It can think and reason, put things in a perspective, judge, compare, contrast, it's rational, logical, linear. So it's a great problem solver, but yeah, then explain the, the higher brain so people know when you're referring to it. Okay, so it's our thinker, right? So we have, a, you know, in very simplistic terms, we have a higher brain, middle brain, lower brain. So the higher brain is our neocortex, and it's our thinker. It has thought, word, reason, perspective, judgment, compare and contrast. It's linear, logical, rational, right? So it is our thinker. Then we have our middle brain, which is more emotion, social engagement, memory, imagination right? And five senses, right? The way we engage in the world through our five senses. And then the lower brain is our, you know, primal brain, our reptilian brain. Um, and it is our early detection warning system, or how I like to think of it is it's our guardian angel, right? It's online or supposed to be online 24 seven, orienting to the environment through all five senses to ensure that the organism is safe. And then it governs the autonomic nervous system, 
which is how our bodies express, right? So when our, when our lower brain is getting the experience that we're under threat, it mobilizes the nervous system into behavior, into arousal. What do we need to do with this threat? Do I need to hide from it? Do I need to run from it? Do I need to fight it? Do I need to pretend like I'm dead? Do I need to make friends with it? Right. And so we have all of these kind of survival strategies that we have to, you know, kind of figure out on the fly, you know, situation by situation. So the higher brain being a problem solver is also a problem seeker. So left to its own devices, the higher brain keeps us in a state of all things problematic. The lower brain doesn't have thought, doesn't have perspective. It uh, can't tell the difference between perception and reality. And so it's a collector of information. It collects information from our memories, what we're currently thinking about, which is usually problems, and then what we're imagining about the future, which is usually catastrophization. And so the higher brain left to its own accord is just keeping us in a constant state of hyperarousal because there's constant threat, right? And so one of the ways that the lower brain can figure out where we are in time and space is to orient through all five senses to the environment, right? So the lower brain is a collector of information. And so that's how it kind of balances out reality from perception. And so one, a really great tool, a great skill is learning how to orient through all five senses to the external environment. And then in time to do that with the internal environment because that's giving the lower brain all or the, the all the, inform, the that's giving the autonomic nervous system the lower brain all the information it needs to know that in this moment I'm safe. Mm-hmm. Right? I can have all these problems going on in my life, but in this moment there's no gun to my head, I'm not being, you know, there's no dog bearing its teeth, I'm not in the middle of a car wreck. You know, my finances may be what they are, my relationships may be what they are, but in this moment right here right now I am safe. Right. And then that can signal the autonomic nervous system to settle. Mm-hmm. And so it's a great, great tool. Yeah, uh, you're right. Because when you're catastrophizing, your higher brain is telling your lower brain to prepare for war or whatever. And then your body starts to feel that. So if you can orient with five senses, like you said, you can shut that lower brain down and calm. Right. So you end up having the experience now that you're wanting to avoid later, right? And so that's just plain illogical. It's not that we don't, it's not that it's not helpful to anticipate, you know, potential problems. Mm -hmm. Um, But oftentimes the problems that we're fixating on in the future never really come to fruition. And yet we have the current experience of them actually happening because our bodies are reacting and responding as if they are here and happening now. Mm-hmm. So now that we understand the different brains, explain how we can really grasp shame. Because ever since we started working together and I started to understand more and more about shame, I just kept telling Kevin, honey, you have like got to study this. You've got to look into this. So yeah. Well, you know, and and <clears throat> honestly, everybody does, you know, because like I said, it's ubiquitous in the human mm-hmm. experience. First of all, we have to understand again that shame is intrinsically, initially physiological. We can feel shame pre-verbal, pre-cognitive, pre-conceptual, right? So again, there's a physiology to it. 
the physiology of shame is actually our survival strategy. It's we're recognizing there's a threat to this interpersonal bridge, right? I'm falling out of favor. And so as a defense mechanism, the brain scrambles. We break social contact, meaning oftentimes looking down in a way. Our throat, our larynx constricts to stop us from saying whatever we were saying. Our chest collapses, our shoulders roll forward. Sometimes a foot turns in or both feet turn in, right? And that posture is non-verbal communication that's saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again, right? And then our system can go into a state of freeze where we become immobilized, right? So we can become immobilized either in bracing or in through complete collapse. And so if we're in a constant state of this death by a thousand paper cuts, there's a, a habituation that becomes habituated physiologically as well. And so that's why, you know, you can look at some people and you can just see the shame posture in them. It's just their core, the way that they hold themselves, their you know, their basic structure is one that is, you know, based in shame, right? So we have to be able to work with shame physiologically because it is a patterning and a habituation and a holding pattern in the body. And it's based on a series of beliefs that continue to self-perpetuate, right? And so that's a big piece of it. Right. We have to understand that although there's a lot of um, material out in cyber worlds around shame, a lot of it is very cognitively based. And yes, there's a part of it. As a first time mom with a baby, I'm always on the go, whether it's running errands, getting my coffee, going to doctor's appointments, or just spending quality time with little Athena. And that's why I rely on wonderful pistachios to keep me fueled and ready for anything, no matter where I am. Kevin even keeps us bag stashed in the nursery. <laughs> you know, for the nighttime hunger moments. Wonderful pistachios comes in a variety of flavors and sizes, making them the perfect snack to have literally any time, whether I'm enjoying them during a quick break in between taping this show or I'm on the go and it's in the diaper bag. I do carry it in my travel bag and they're in my car. At this point, when I'm leaving the house, I think keys, wallet, wonderful pistachios. <laughs> Bonus, wonderful pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts with six grams of protein in every one ounce serving. So on top of all that, they keep me feeling satisfied. I'm energized while I'm juggling all this crazy stuff in life. Next time you're looking for a convenient and guilt-free snack, head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com and stock up on your favorite flavors today. Minus the sweet chili. That, you know, becomes part of the patterning because what happens is, is that we keep taking on all the messaging from the outside world. And it's not just our parents, it's our siblings and the kids on the playground and the teachers and the coaches and clergy and, and all of that, right? Media, right? We're getting all kinds of information all the time. And we're taking on those messages about ourselves. And then we form a part of us that becomes the inner police or the, or the inner critic. Right. And it's there to protect us. It's working for us to keep us safe. It's saying, hey, don't say that. What are you thinking? Don't do that again. Right. And so it's trying to monitor us so that if we don't exhibit the same words and behavior or not exhibit the right words and behavior in certain situations so that we have a greater chance of remaining connected. 
right? And so a lot of times people, you know, are just eating themselves alive. In fact, I had a client, a new client came in one time a few years ago and she sat down and she said, look, I know you're into this whole shame thing and I don't really have any shame. I just need you to help me stop this voice in my head that's eating me alive. Ah. <laughs> so, you know, it's helpful to have the cognitive awareness and understanding around things, but we also have to do the work. And so we have to ultimately become willing to lean in and feel the shame and recognize how and where we're feeling what in our bodies to learn how to tolerate that, right? Because a lot of times the shame is so intense that when we tap into the edge of it, the whole system can collapse. Mm -hmm. That's why you said a really good practitioner will get you right there just enough and pull you back out. Exactly. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like homeopathy, right? We want to just get a little bit of arousal and then move out of it and resource and redirect awareness. So the system can kind of deal with that charge and unwind and discharge. And then we go back into the new edge of what's still there. And then we come back out again. So, So you know, talk to me about shame in terms of like one of the things that always stuck out when you said is like, wherever there's difference, there's shame. I want people to really understand where shame lives and how it kind of is presented in ways that we don't even maybe pay attention to. Right. So shame exists anywhere there's difference, anywhere there's a sense of I'm other. A lot of times we conceptualize it in the idea of I'm less than, I'm unequal to, I'm damaged, I'm broken, there's something wrong with me, I'm not like the others, I don't fit in, right? So we have we have that conceptualization of it. But we can also have shame when we're one up, when we're doing better than our friends, right? Um, you know, I grew up in an affluent household and my friends weren't all from affluent households. I had an impeccable education. So, you know, I mean, I was taking advanced, you know, I mean, our curriculum was advanced compared to local public schools, et cetera. So my vocabulary was amazing. My diction and elocution and all of that was much more elevated than much of the kids that I hung out with. And so I would dumb myself down. I would consciously choose different words. I would change the way that I spoke to try to match their dialect, right? And so that was me recognizing there's something wrong with me because I'm different, I'm better, I'm, you know, I have a better, I have a better, you know, education or I have more financial resources um, than the kids that I was trying to connect to and attune to. Yeah, I think that's important to share that it can be both ways. Um, even in COVID, right? I mean, COVID has been horrifically devastating for so many people. I've had friends that, you know, have lost their jobs and lost family members and, you know, all kinds of things like that. And, you know, I found myself kind of having, feeling like I needed to hold back because, it wasn't that much of a change for me personally. I'd been working on video for 18 years already, right? I had an international practice that, Mm -hmm. you know, changing over to Zoom was not unusual for me. Um, Being at home wasn't that unusual for me. You know, I had to buy the lease on my car because after three years, I only had 7,000 miles on it. And I live in Hollywood, (laughs) you know, where nobody walks, right? So, you know, I I had already had this foundation of kind of being 
at home working on video. And then because it was COVID, you know, and I did some, you know, kind of video outreach and things like that, you know, my practice got even busier, you know, and I was dealing with another thing and that was too much, right? I mean, I was seeing 48 clients a week at the peak, you know, and a normal practice is 15 to 20 clients a week. And so, you know, there were people that I could share that with, but even some of my peers, I couldn't because of the inequity. Yeah, absolutely. So with shame, I want to understand how it can be a physiological wound. Okay. Well, as I said before, it's a physiological reaction, right? Break social engagement, eyes down, larynx constricts, chest constricts, collapses, right? So that can become a physiological wound and a holding pattern, right? Um, And it can also be a hair trigger. So we can be in a great place, in a great mood with close friends, and then somebody says something that lands in you to trip your old trigger around shame and your whole system can go in to collapse. And then all of a sudden you're withdrawing and you're not engaged in the group anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. So it can be really, really subtle and it can also be really dramatic. And there's a big difference between the intention behind what someone says and the way it lands in you. Right. Because the way it lands in you is based in your wounds, your beliefs, your defenses, your coping mechanisms, your survival strategies and ways of, you know, of self-regulating and all of that. Right. So, you know, I think of the body, um, you know, as a landmine field. We're riddled with all of these old wounds, these tiny little, you know, short circuits or, or um, you know, clusters of these beliefs that are being held in place. Right. So let's, if I may kind of take that back to what we were talking about earlier with the groin, which was Mm -hmm. the first kind of presenting symptom that, you know, we worked around. Um, And yes, you know, we were able to just kind of bring attention awareness to it, move in and out of it, you know, in a way in which it was able to begin to unwind. And then I believe it was the second session where we revisited and when we did the inquiry around what was old and familiar about this, the memory bubbled up of you standing in the kitchen with your mom and she's on the phone with a long phone cord and she's in a bit of a panic and you were in a state of, you know, kind of immobilized terror because there was concern about, you know, um, can I say? Yeah, my dad. Okay, about your dad because he was, uh, you know, a, a um, diabetic, mm-hmm. right? And there were there was always concern as to whether or not his blood sugar was okay and the implications of what that was when it wasn't, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was this memory of of horror, right? Because you were witnessing the terror in your mother. And you were also in the horror of the potential loss of your father, whether it was not, you know, we can't just find him right now, or maybe there's actually something wrong with him, Mm -hmm. right? And then that got somaticized and held in your body in such a way, in this bracing way, right? Mm -hmm. And then that got, um, you know, habituated and reinforced every time 
there was this concern about your father's blood sugar level. No wonder my brain's so tired. My higher brain was like always on alert. I mean, I always yeah. say we were in fight or flight every day with my dad because his blood sugars were dropped to really unfathomable un, um, levels. And we had to be so in sync to be able to know that he wasn't okay energetically or because he didn't show up on time or whatever. We were you said always, that you would have that feeling in class or in school and all of a sudden you'd be like, something's wrong with dad. I got to go home and I would find him on the floor and, and I'd have to revive him. So we always lived on pins and needles. So my higher brain was always looking for the problem, finding the problem, always afraid. And then my lower brain was like, okay, we're ready. We're ready for anything. So I just, right. this is how I lived all the time. Yeah. <laughs> You're in a state of hypervigilance, right? Yeah. And bracing. Yeah. And when the adult in the house is showing you that there's a reason to be panicked and she was just terrified all the time. Uh, yeah. It's really scary. So. Yeah. So, you know, we don't want to forget that there's also combined in with this over time, the thought process, the beliefs, right? Because that's really kind of what holds everything in place. Mm -hmm. Right. It doesn't matter how much you you have a cognitive conviction. I'm going to not I'm not going to think that way anymore. I'm going to think this way. Right. I'm going to make my vision boards. I'm going to do my affirmations. I'm going to say my mantras and I'm going to you know catch every negative thought that comes in and turn it into a positive one. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, not that notwithstanding that that those practices aren't helpful, um, but they're not necessarily curative, right? Um, what we ultimately need to do is to have the underlying belief change, right? If we go back to the model of, you know, thoughts and feelings, beliefs and behaviors of how they all cluster together, we have to also look at how we have two different kinds of thought. We have thoughts that come in and we're not really sure where they come from, the collective conscious, unconscious, Godhead, seat of the soul, you know, who knows. Um, but we also have the ability to think. And so we can have the thought come in, the feelings around the thought come up. We can inquire around the beliefs that are there. We can recognize that the behaviors are there. And then as the observer, we have the ability to think about that. Is this cluster something that I want to continue to inform and form my future, right? Because our past is the greatest influence in our future. Mm -hmm. All of our habituations, all of our beliefs are what are manifesting our future. So if I have a negative thought come in and all I do is go, oh, there's one of those negative thoughts, I'm gonna change it into a positive thought. What do we have now? We have two opposing thoughts. And when we have two opposing anything, we have conflict. And when we have conflict, what do we have? Feelings of conflict, right? And so that isn't necessarily enough to, to break the chain, mm. as it were, right? So, yeah. So that's, that's actually interesting because I feel like I just realized that since we've done this work, I've been so different with my dad. It's so funny, actually. I'm just realizing it now. I don't panic at night about him. 
I don't rush into his room in the middle of the night because I have a feeling like maybe his sugar's dropped. I made a decision that I wasn't going to live my life in fear with him anymore. And I just know that whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I'm putting all the things in place. I have a caretaker here. I'm, I'm doing everything I can to, you know, pad the walls and make it safe, but I'm not going to go down that path anymore. And right. I'm calmer. I sleep well. I'm not stressed. I'm basically, I've kind of just been like, you're an adult and you know what to do. Like, just do uh, it. So two things have happened from my perspective. Your internal environment has changed, right? Your clusters of thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. Those clusters have been reorganizing. There's shift and change there. Mm -hmm. The external world has to reflect the internal environment. Most people try to change the external world in hopes of changing the internal environment. But when we actually have this discharge, reorganization, integration, uh, you know, and, and return of resilience to the nervous system and new tools and skills and resources and reparative and corrective experiences that substantiate all of that, then we're in our skin and in a different way, mm -hmm. right? And part of what you've done externally is you put the resources in place. You've got the caretaker, it's, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so, you know, I remember when I was in my process, initially I was just going to deal with a car wreck, right? This catastrophic car wreck. I, you know, that's really where all of our attention went initially. But I noticed my relationships were changing. And I remember going into my practitioner, I go, I don't know if this is related, but I can really <laughs> tell all of my relationships are really changing. But we haven't said word one about relationships or we, we hadn't even dealt with developmental trauma which is an intrinsic part of how we relate with other people and she said well of course you're changing mm. so people you're not as thin-skinned you're more resourced you have you know um greater awareness and understanding and, and and you know perspective and so people can't push your buttons the way that they used to yeah um, you know, and so my relationships were changing because I had changed. Yeah, I like that you're more resourced. Right. Yeah. That's and that's really the, the axiom of working somatically. And real estate is location, location, location. And, and this work is resource, resource, resource. All right, guys, that is the end of part one, but stay tuned for part two. We get in a little deeper and I know it's a lot of complex stuff, but I think the second episode, it really comes together. Hey, Heal Squad, we have been on quite the journey together and we're hearing from so many of you just how much this show is helping you heal and get better and it makes us feel so good. We love, love, love it and we just ask that you don't keep it to yourself. Spread the message and share the show or your favorite episode with your friends. And if you want to help us even more, you can leave us a five-star rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and follow us on Instagram at Heal Squad. You can also DM us anytime because we love connecting with you. And finally, you can also join us on Patreon for our monthly live heal events with world-class healers and ad-free episodes exclusive only to Patreon and our Super Heal Squad for as little as $10 a month. So go to patreon.com backslash heel squad to join. 
Getting better isn't easy, friends, but as I say all the time, it's a whole lot easier if we can do it together. We love you all so much, and we love doing this thing called life with you.